Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Welcome to this episode of In the Landscape. We're so glad you could join us for a new topic on landscape design. And today's episode, we're actually going to dive right into. My name is Kate Sadler. I'm your host today. And with me is my co-host, Charles. Hi, Charles. Good to be here. Good to have you in studio. It's a lot of fun for us to record this podcast. We work really hard coming up with topics for our listening audience. And we're sensitive to which episodes seem to do better. And not just from, we hope you're listening perspective, but from a, which ones are resonating the most with our listening audience perspective. So we thought we would go back to the Back to Basics series. We've done one of those shows in this podcast so far. That one was on pruning. So if you're new to our podcast, but you're here for some of the beginner topics on the landscape, feel free to go back in the series and take a look for some more under this series title, Back to Basics. We hope this will be a useful starting point for your landscape journey. And it might be just good reminders for those of us who already know something about the topic, but we're refreshing. You mentioned, Charles, when we were researching this article, that uh, many of the people in this industry who do design actually teach it as well. Oh, right. You know, having that expression, you don't have to go back to the basics if you never leave them. Mm. And so that gets my attention that having to teach someone, we've had uh, young people work with us, summer interns, you know, people career change. So having to explain some, explain a concept, you, the teacher really, really has to understand it and make really, really simplify it. And then to confirm that the person understands it and then often have to say it in, in another way. Yeah, I found that as well. And actually many of the people who are the top educator at big university programs often have still a hand in the practice of, of their uh, landscape design or landscape architecture. Right. They really do. If you look at the top schools, yeah. it, keeps, yeah, it keeps you, I guess, you have a hand in both worlds. What the latest technology is. I've had professors when I was at Syracuse, they went back to teaching because they felt like graduates didn't have some of the basic uh, skills that they wanted to hire, like oh. being able to write a memo to, you know, in a professional manner for, for graduating, it, like office speak. And construction documents, you know, the, like the nitty gritty CAD drawings for big projects that are really, really, really involved. So, of course, this podcast is focused on the landscape in particular. And a lot of our episodes are about a horticultural perspective, pruning, planting, timing in the garden. And yet your background is actually your undergraduate degree was from the Rochester Institute of Technology. Mm -hmm. And it was in what? Graphic design and illustration. So nothing to do with plants at that point. Correct, right. But everything to do with design and art in a way. Mm -hmm. and a, you know, a big part of any type of design school, well, there's a lot of studio time where it's very labor intensive, where you're, you're often an elective first thing in the morning, then you're in studio from like nine to noon and then two to five. And then you go back after dinner and you and you're work on the project. So it's, it's like a labor intensive field, the same as like being like a carpenter. There's a lot of <laughs> cutting and sawing of sort. You're not just being sort of tasked with thinking about things and maybe writing about them, but you, you have an output that really you have to put the time in or it's not, it's not there. There's no cramming. Maybe there is a little bit in yeah. every field. Yeah, there's all nighters, <laughs> but still there's a lot of preparation. Yeah, yeah. 
What then is the distinction between going for a de- like a design degree and going for an art, fine arts degree? Or what, I suppose not the degree itself, but the two fields, how are those distinct? Well, uh, good question. So in the applied arts, you're more or less, you're answering a question or you're solving a problem. So that could be an industrial designer is going to design a beautiful car or a beautiful toaster <laughs> or sunglasses. A graphic designer is going to is going to create signage so you can find your way in a museum or in a city where a fine artist definitely has goals and agendas, but it's, they're not necessarily, they're not creating applied art. It's not necessarily solving a problem for the masses. Now, when you were a student, was there a different track for the students going into graphic design versus illustration, or was there an overlap there? Uh, there's a lot of overlap. So that's true for landscape architecture, graduate, undergraduate, and, you know, and all the applied arts. There's generally a foundation program, which is quite a few courses, like your first year often, which would be for the apply for graphic design illustration. It was making two-dimensional design, three-dimensional design. There's color theory in there. There were other electives. So you're learning more or less to communicate in this universal language. In landscape design, it was similar. So there's a lot of overlap. And then it wasn't until you got those basics that then you started to specialize. So it sounds a little like being able to understand the key signatures and harmonic progressions in music. And and then if you're going to take that and apply it to classical music or jazz or to an instrument that's a keyboard versus stringed instrument, there's still a, a common language that you learn across the board. And then you're able to kind of play around with that once you get into the field. Right. Correct. So it's quite universal. So when I talk to, like we do a lot of collaborating. I mean, with engineers, there's collaboration, interior designers, architects, other landscape designers, landscape architects. So you're pretty much talking about the same. They'll say, okay, what's the program? What's the layout? So one thing that's evident is that these, if, if it's considered that important for the students to all take the same foundations courses, and if you're not a designer, as I am not, and you go to, say, decorate your room, and you're starting from scratch, you don't even, you're not even quite, maybe you even have some color sense and, and some eye for, like, is this picture, you know, even or not? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you've got some sense of what should, things should look like visually. But if you don't have the, ba- the foundations that have, I, it sounds like they've been kind of laid out by people across cultures and across time because they're just fundamental principles of how maybe we see and interact in spaces. Right, correct. Um, I mean, there is science to it. You're sort of at a disadvantage if you don't understand these basics. Right, there'd be common mistakes. I mean, like with something like on a practical level, selecting a material. Someone might fall in love with terrazzo stone, you know? So even with like a stone, there'd be different finishes. And so there'd be a finish so different finishes. So, uh, I mean, there'd be finishes that would accumulate lots of dirt and it wouldn't wear as well. So knowing it's so tempting. I mean, in a previous episode, we talked uh, design. It's tempting to, to jump to the final solution. In other words, trying to get knowing where they want to go, but not quite knowing how to get there. Right. Correct. So you fall, might 
And I mean, there's lots of things done on impulse. I've been on properties where a, a fellow professional said, oh, that looks like an impulse purchase where it's maybe something, it's very beautiful in and of itself, but it doesn't, doesn't fit. So in food, it'd be like having a plate, you have a meatball and you have sushi. It's like, now those are both beautiful, but do those go together on the same plate? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> like going to a buffet, this impulse, you know? Yeah. So good design has, there's lots of restraint, there's simplicity. When I was a young designer and you learn a certain trick or technique, it's so tempting. Let's say you know six tricks. It's tempting to use all six tricks. And so restraint is really saying, like you have a favorite tree, a favorite plant, but putting it through a very, very fine filter and saying that is really not appropriate for this. But having faith, someday there'll be the appropriate situation for this paving material, this arbor, this urn, this tree. And then when it's masters of landscape design, landscape architecture, it's like pitch perfect. Like when you hit, let's say a tennis ball, golf ball, baseball, when you strike it perfectly, it's, it's seamless. And it just, you almost feel like there's, there's no effort required. And so when you really select the right material, the right element, because it's gone through this fine sorting, this design in a way is sorting. I guess it, that's where, where it really becomes art, where it, it's, there's a, an emotional connection. It solves the problem that there's, and that there's a resonance too. That's a helpful explanation because I think the issue for me, for example, as a non-designer is I see something well-designed and because it, it looks, because it, it's been made to seem effortless, it's as though there's no effort required, to oh, it, right. which is, <laughs> you know, so I can go to the, the store with the home decor and kind of pick things out and with no process behind it, it's anything but effortless because where does this go? What, what have I done? So that brings us to one analogy that we had sort of talked over in preparation, because as, again, I'm the non-designer. So I'm asking you mm-hmm. as a beginner, which is helpful for the course, you know, preparing this type of episode, what is design? How, what are you actually doing? And you related to me this analogy of writing that mm-hmm. is really an outline. It's a way of preparing the outline for where these aesthetic items are going to go. And we sort of worked it back to the origin of writing, which is essentially, what is the question? What are you even writing about? Right. And so it, what it, is it, the question in design? You're often solving a problem. Now, I mean, you could put it in other terms, but it's more or less a problem might be like, there's a beautiful view of the hillside, but it's too hot to be out there and there's no place to sit. It's too windy. So those would be, some, that could be in a public space, private space, institution. So those would be, that would be more or less the problem they'd be charged with. And it could, I mean, I suppose it could be as simple as I have an empty room. I have an open garden. Mm-hmm. What do I put in there? Right. And so really, I mean, there's some, some critics of landscape design, landscape architecture would say and it's, that it's, it's just surface decoration. It's just cosmetic. So, I mean, sort of at its worst, it could be that. Well, especially if you take my approach. <laughs> right. and, and even the way I phrased the question, as I was thinking more about what we've discussed already, I believe the way I phrased it, which is indicative of my state of mind, was what would I put in to this blank space, to this room, to this landscape, rather than what I hear you saying oh, time and time again, as we discuss these concepts, how do I want to use this? Correct. So it's, 
in a way, what's the minimum required for success? Like you think of a hammer that's that was designed probably in a, an industrial designer. Uh, at one point, maybe it was like a Neanderthal, let's say, or a cave person. So, it, I mean, a hammer. That's a good example. Of, everyone can probably imagine what a hammer looks like. That was designed. So is there's it's like what materials are required? Does it fit in the average hand? What's the goal? The whole the, the goal is is to drive a nail in. So it's it's solving a specific problem. It's the I mean a hammer. It could be made out of it could have diamonds on it. It could be made out of gold, but that wouldn't that wouldn't solve the problem any better. That'd be like a waste. So it's more or less. It also has a tool to take a nail out. So that's. That's a good example of design. It's you can put a nail in, pick a nail out. It's the minimum materials. It's reason. It's a reasonable cost too. It's wood readily available, metal readily available. It's not. It doesn't need to last forever, but it's going to last a reasonable amount of time. And so that same principles would when you're designing a, a landscape. If you want it to last forever, then those materials are going to cost more. Then you're probably going to use more stone, less wood. Mm-hmm. So you're asking the question, how am I going to use this space? And that may take some analysis of the space, which we've talked about in a previous episode. Planning pays off, actually. It's one of our earlier episodes, Mm -hmm. this idea of where's the sun coming from? What are the temperatures like? What views are you seeing? So I strongly suggest going back and listening to that episode, if this is your first introduction to landscape design, because Mm -hmm. that will cover this portion of the topic, which is what is the question? Mm -hmm. Then we get to the point where we're writing the paper, we're doing the outline, we're answering the question. What are some steps we would take? You know, doing a sketch, that's always important. And so if it's to scale, that's great. But just a sketch of the space, what goes where? And so it's, it's going and then really thinking what's the minimum needed. So it's tempting to think, I mean, some of these uh, large residential homes when it's many thousands of square feet, the patio spaces, for instance, are are also very large. So for a family of let's say four or five people, I mean the patio is so large you could you could have fifty people on it. And so the patio is not really that's oversized. And then you'd have to have furniture if it's not filled; it looks empty. So it's really thinking carefully. What's what's needed? What's the goal? How do we get there? (laughs) Looking at other good examples of similar spaces. So photographs, designs. So this is akin to the the, like literature you would review, you would do if you're writing a paper or the the doing your research. And again, I think you'll hear us in just about every episode suggesting that, especially because it's obviously if we're researching and doing podcasts, something we find interesting, Mm -hmm. but um, you know, and there are, apps galore, including, you know, including Pinterest and Instagram that can make this process easy and fun. And again, you can go well into your imagination on those apps and then rein it back in when it comes to kind of figuring out what the minimum is to get the space to start to fulfill the program that you have in mind. Right. And, and visiting good examples of design. And would that include... It? not just landscape design. So we're talking about the principles that mm-hmm. should apply across fields of design. Correct. What are some examples of where you might find good quote design? Well, I mean, like some retail stores, there's just beautiful materials like the Apple store. There's a beautiful paving stone. It was used maybe in one of their offices. And I think it comes from maybe from Italy. And so it's just this beautiful material. And they said, let's have that. <laughs> 
it's so nice. Let's have that in the store. So it sends a message. You have a nice material. It's worth paying for good materials, but, but not overdoing it. It's tempting to say, oh boy, we want to, where you really just adding ornament. So good materials is when you think of like cooking a meal, there's not going to, on, on the average plate, you're going to have like a protein, vegetables, maybe a starch. And so it's, that's really good design. It's, and then it's proportionate. You're not going to eat many pounds of, of a protein. And actually, the, when you cook, you're designing. You're saying, what's the scale? What's the size of the people? What's appropriate? It's, it's dinner time or it's lunchtime or breakfast. So people actually use design all the time. When you get dressed, you're thinking, what time of year is it? What colors maybe would, be, would relate to that season? Do I need warm clothes? Is it cold out? Is it hot out? So we really use design all the time. There is a design museum. It's actually one of the Smithsonian museums, and it's in New York City on the east side. It's called the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. Oh, right, so if you fun. happen to be in New York, and this concept of design as a, as, a, as a bit distinct from fine art is something that interests you. It's a gorgeous space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got it, a, an amazing outdoor area as well with some really cool chairs <laughs> like mm-hmm. that are, you sit in them and they almost like rotate. There's, oh, I can picture uh, yeah, those. There's, so there's like the fun and function and kind of niftiness of design all rolled into one. And we may be able to provide some links to some other design, quote, specific museums in some of the great cities we cover. And uh, that one was a particular favorite when I visited. (laughs) You know, just talking, hearing your question, just reminding me, there's this mystique and mystery about design. And I guess my goal would be that it's not warranted. It's everybody designs. And so it's people that might be great at design. They've done, they've practiced a lot. They've had good training, good mentors. They've made a lot of mistakes. Like <laughs> someone that's a good designer has made every single mistake. Sometimes many times, like I've made some of the same mistakes over and over. And then you learn, wow, that really, you really do need to like plant in, in groups of three. Like there's really a reason for that. It looks awkward when you don't, or if it's, you're going to plant in groups of two, it should be intentional. Maybe you're marking the entrance to a path. All right. So hopefully this has helped us to conceptualize the mindset we have going into design. You have a question, you have a space, you're thinking about the program, you've worked out a plan, you've started to do the little checklist of what goes into the space. But taking it away from the landscape for just a moment, what are basic categories that we're thinking of in design? Okay, very good question. Well, I mean, one's the color, which is maybe one of the most popular parts of design. Uh, so color, uh, scale, what's the layout? There are, our listeners can look up the gestalt design principles that in, in my design training, that was all often. So some of them are closure, continuation, figure ground, proximities, symmetry. And so these are, when you look at beautiful signs, logos, they are using those principles. So there's, there's a reason why something is very legible. There's a reason why things don't read well, where it's like cluttered or it's illegible. And so the same readability that a sign would have when it's beautifully done, a garden, it would be successful or unsuccessful for the same reasons. Is there is there contrast? Having some contrast is pleasing. 
like when you have a beautiful, let's say, type of a, of a pine tree, and maybe it's silhouetted against the sky, that works really well. But that same, if it was not silhouetted, then you wouldn't be able to see it. It wouldn't be legible. And so having principles like overlap is very important. Having some overlap, contrast, and a way it all comes, the legibility or the readability, in a way, almost all the principles go through that filter. Because if, for instance, if it was without, if there's no light or if, you, if there's no contrast, then you can't see. And so occasionally that'll happen. <laughs> so let's talk about color for a minute. You, you mentioned it's probably one of the most popular and it might be the first thing I think of when I think design. Again, if I'm heading to that store with the home decor, I'm thinking, what colors do I want in this room? Mm-hmm. Maybe certainly, I mean, for myself before I'm thinking, how do I want to use this room? So again, I have new things to think about in our, in our own home. Color. There's a lot of resources out there. There's certainly most of our listeners are probably familiar with the, the color wheel, this concept of contrasting colors. What does the, how does it operate in the garden, in the landscape? Well, you know, the, the latitude where you're located, the intensity of the light, that's very important. So if you're at a high, if you're closer to the poles, the light is generally, it's not overhead. So you're going to have, you see that when you go, let's say like to Montana, British Columbia, it's far enough from the equator. The conifers are very tall and narrow, They're almost like a flagpole because the sun is, is on the horizon a lot of the time, where if you're close to the equator, like in a Mediterranean climate, it's strong, sun is very strong. So strong colors, an average saturation of color will get washed out. So a red would look like pink. I mean, when it's a very bright day, everything almost looks like white, actually. You can imagine you come out of, like when you go to the eye doctor and they, your eyes get dilated, you walk outside and it's sunny out, everything is like blinding. Well, and we're doing a project where we're installing a fence that's going to be finished with a specific color. And there was a process that you undertook in order to figure out which would be the correct color. Oh, right. That, that was a good example. From a paint store, there's a fan deck where you have the paint chips. That's a great tool. I find, you know, I bring that with me. When someone says, oh, I want, you know, like a French blue, having them show you, what do you mean by that? Because mm-hmm. everybody, it's, it's ambiguous, depending on your background, your culture. <laughs> so for this fence, the fence is on the south side of the property. So it's going to be seen from inside the home. So it's, it's quite a big feature. It's an important feature. And so the theme of this garden, actually, there's an f- air of, of French culture to it. So, so a blue that you'd see in France is what I selected. You're going to be seeing the, the north side of the fence, which is in the northern hemisphere. That's going to be in shade almost all day. And there'll be a time where the sun will be directly over it. So to get that, that blue feeling that I wanted, I held the, the paint chip in the shade and looked at it. And so, so, to, so to get the, that saturation that you needed, I picked a much lighter blue than if it was in full sun. So this is an idea that will be important in terms of design. And we're saying, do your research, get out there, look on Pinterest. However, as you're saying, the light in the space is so important for the way color is going to read mm-hmm. that having something that you can actually bring into that space and manipulate to kind of see it in context is going to be really important. That function and 
is a big part of how design is actually applied. Right. It's very practical that it's not, it's a means to an end. The design, it's just a way, it's the road to get to your destination. So it reminded me of that there was some internet phenomenon where there was a dress that looked white and gold to oh, some right. people <laughs> and blue and black, I guess, to others. I only ever saw white and gold, but <laughs> I don't. my understanding is that the way the shadow is perceived by our brains it can be slightly different you mm-hmm. know, across the human spectrum. So, oh, you know, what that I, makes me think of is uh, the colorist uh, Albers and Itten that, that studied color. And they did that exact same thing. Okay. So they had people look at different colors and see how they were perceived differently. Right. Correct. And so yeah. it's all colors in relation to each other. So how you see it is based on the color that's next to it. It changes what you think is the same color or you think is different colors based on the proximity of another color. It actually, So it's, it can be quite confusing. Well, and it may be different for you than it is for your designer. So it's a good idea to be involved in to to know these principles and then be involved in that process mm-hmm. to say that picking it off of that color deck or whatever is not maybe not as simple as it sounds and you're going to want to see it all put together before you make some expensive decisions about right. what's going to go into place so that's color but you know color changes in the in the landscape it's going to change as the seasons change of course that's been a big theme for the podcast so far as well are there principles that you find almost supersede color in terms of importance when you're, when you're designing. And now we will go back to the landscape because that's the context in which we're using these principles. Mm-hmm. You know, a tool, there's other principles I'll talk about, but a tool, an idea board. So that could be an online idea board, but having a physical idea board where you have all the different materials that you're going to use, that's very helpful. Some of these firms that I visit that we do consulting work for, they often have a materials library where they have glass jars of other types of aggregate or samples of marble or paving. So really putting, I mean, physically putting that stone next to that brick, next to the color of the fence, uh, next to that plant. And then you're, you're building, like if it was cooking, you're building this complexity of colors and materials. So let's see. So other, so scale is very important. So it's, and then within scale, so that would be how wide are the steps? How big is the gathering space? How large are the plants? I mean, plants can be maintained different sizes. There's, let's say, dwarf plants that stay small. The average plant is going to keep always getting bigger. So spaces often get overcrowded or pathways, walkways get obstructed by plants. So really, the scale is really important. And that if it feels comfortable, then it's then the scale's about right. If it, it can feel crowded, so then it's uncomfortable. If it's if the scale is too large, it feels uncomfortable too. So that is the way you would judge scale essentially is based on feel more than visual cues? Well, like basic measurements. So like we talked about using putting stakes like where things might occur, using marking paint. When I'm in a space, I will pace it off. I'll say, okay, this is how many feet is this? this? Does this feel about right? So you get a rough idea when you're in the space, and then you can work out details on paper. And understanding the scale that things will be at full maturity is important. Right. And honestly, I, a phenomenon that often happens to me once I've moved into a new physical space 
is I'll set things up the way I think I'm going to use them. And then it just so happens over time that you figure out things are a little different. And we went to a park recently where there's these gorgeous paths that kind of wind all over the park, plenty of paths to walk on. But there's one small section where folks have cut across the landscape and you can see it's well-worn and it might be a good idea to have stepping stones there or another Mm -hmm. path, like an actual, actual paving, because that is how it's being used. And so it's certainly okay if you don't come into a space and figure out the design program intuitively off the bat. It seems like what's important is to be aware of these elements and to feel them over time and kind of judge like, is this working? And then of course, with the landscape, it's possible to make adjustments over time. Right. I would agree. I mean, there's that term when you're in a space, indoor, outdoor, where you're like listening to the space. So you're spatially, there's like, you get a spatial feel. Like when you're in a confined space, it's uncomfortable. You're like, well, this is, so you're listening to the space and then it's more or less I feel like to me, it's like telling me what it's needed. Like, oh boy, there'd be nice if there was an upright element here. So there's like a little bit of enclosure. And so that listening, using elements like putting stakes in the ground where something might occur or purchasing plants, but not planting them, putting them, they're still in the container, depending on how you know, large the plants are. Even on very large projects, I do that quite a bit. I lay it out and then I, I, I refine it because what's the plan on paper? is you're organizing your thoughts. And then when you're in the, physically in the space, it's always a little different. Now, one thing I, I want to mention, we've talked before, I think on a different episode, can't quite remember. You mentioned a principle called universal design, mm-hmm. which is a way of designing for people of differing abilities to experience a space in a way that may be unique, but accessible. We'd love to do an episode that talks more about designing with accessibility. Of course, we're talking about being able to see the landscape. And many people experience the the garden without sight as a sense. We often are, many of us, experiencing changes in ability. That ability Mm -hmm. can certainly change over time. So there may be ways to plan a garden that's going to adapt with you as, as our differing abilities change. So not to leave anyone out to say that there are ways to apply these principles to make landscapes accessible, to make them adaptable over time so that everybody is getting something out of their experience of the garden. Right. That's very important. So we'll talk. These are design basics. We'll talk more about other design principles in other episodes. Right. So I talked about scale. There's layouts. That's like where different elements are. And so looking at good examples of layout, because it's what you, I remember in my landscape architecture training, I think it was one of the first years when we had a courtyard, it was a project, we had a courtyard, we were charged with designing it. And I remember the professor, so the common mistake is, is to plant a tree right in the middle. And you think, oh, that's, you want shade, it'll have interest. It's, it more or less fills this, so visually, it sort of, it fills the space and it, so it doesn't, Good design, it can quote unquote create space where you have in a building, there's walls where it's very clearly defined. In landscape design, landscape architecture, there could be wall, it could also be very defined, but it's off, there's often elements where it's a little bit less. So let's say having like a, like a, a waist height hedge, it starts to define, it starts to create a sense of space. Oh, this is 
one garden or one area and there's steps and there's another garden area. Maybe the hedges are taller there. Well, to continue to make analogies to different art forms, I mean, it's like the uh, rests in a, in a musical score or mm-hmm. uh, one of the examples you pulled out was like the FedEx logo where the void that creates the little arrow mm-hmm. and then the voids around the letters help define that design. That's the, the eye perceives those in a specific way. All right, so, yeah, that's from one of the Gestalt principles called figure ground or figure ground reversal. So it's, are you seeing the faces and vases is a classic figure ground oh, reversal. Yes. Mm-hmm. So do you see the vase or do you see the faces? And so really beautiful design. It will have that, there's that type of a soulful resonance when you're in this space that those type of magic, that's like when we're really sort of magical or spiritual, something you, it really creates uh, an emotional response when these things are done well. So maybe you're looking out on the horizon, there's a hedge, there's a silhouetted tree, it's catching the sunlight. And all these elements are, all these design solutions are working together. It creates an emotional response. So in addition to our thinking about color specifically, there is just the principle of light and shadow Mm -hmm. taking place in the garden, especially because we have the sun as this extra figure that kind of plays a role. So how would you, uh, what are some good examples? How would you capitalize on shadow in the landscape? Uh, I guess the sun, the light and shadow, it's really how you see. So knowing imagining i do that all the time i imagine where the shadow will be so you're no the plants to succeed they need sun so you're placing specific types of plants in the condition like the right plant in the right place and then part of that is imagining where the shadow will be Uh, so we think of it often in the landscape as shade because plants are shade and sun dependent but there's a way of thinking of it from a design perspective where shadow is a, is a, I don't know if you would call it a color or, I mean, it's, it's a shadow. So it's mm-hmm. this darkness that is lending some character to the landscape that changes as the day progresses and changes as the seasons change. So it's really a figure that you could play around with. Right. Correct. It's very important knowing what shapes the shadows are creating shapes. And so the shapes could be, so let's say you're in, like close to the equator, Mediterranean. The sun is closer to overhead a lot of the day. There's still shade. If you're in an upper latitude, you're going to have long shadows a lot of the time. Almost, there's almost always longer shadows. And so that really affects. So understanding all that. It's just another element that one could be creative with if, if mm-hmm. one wanted to be. And there's a, oh, right. a designer you've mentioned before. Uh, A.E. Bai, who his practice was out of like Greenwich, Connecticut. He was like a landform artist, a landscape architect, but so he really played around with one of his famous residential designs. I think it was George Soros's property. So it's knowing, so that it's a sculpted lawn, sculpted landscape, and lawn is the plant material. And so let me think of a golf course where it's the sand dune that's quite deeply sculpted. And he was also a photographer. He photographed the work. And so where it was in the, in the Northeast, and so there was snow occurred. So these sculpted elements, the higher areas when there would be snow would melt first. So then there was this pattern created of snow and melted and, and grass where the snow had melted. So you're really imagining 
where you're going to see it from, the light conditions, the time of day that you're going to see it. Any other principles from your foundation's courses that you think are crucial to then mapping onto this broader concept of landscape design? Well, let's see. I mean, some of these, I'm looking at uh, Michigan State University. They have uh, design principles, which there's a nice organization to them. The one term, which I would agree with, which I haven't come across before, called focalization. What's the focal point? Remember when I was an illustrator, you're, so again, like you're solving a problem, you're creating this visual image, and there, there's always a focal point. We call it, there'd be like the primary element. So that could be like whatever that is in the, in the artwork. There'd often be a secondary element, something that's also adds interest, or maybe it, it also conveys you, your theme, but it's, it's a supporting cast member. There's like the star of the show, and there's all the supporting cast members. And with good design, it really does do that. It's having, I mean, that temptation when you're, when you're a beginner is to have many focal points. You want to have all these things screaming for your attention. And so the restraint is really deciding where should the focal point be? What will it be? It could be a plant. It could be an architectural element. And then are the, are the supporting elements, are they in support of that focal point? So maybe there's, there's a beautiful sculptural element that has lots of detail. Maybe there's color to it. I can think of Alexander Calder's, you know, bright, bright uh, red sculptures often. So the plantings wouldn't want to compete with that. And it's not, you referred to this previously, but this idea that then the landscape, it may be like a square fenced yard, but you can use the elements of design within the landscape to almost create, I think you've called them nodes before. Oh, right. Like, like a gathering space. Where you're able to, if you do want to, I mean, you don't have to have, as you said, one tree in the middle of the yard or one <laughs> water feature in the middle of everything. You can have, you can shape the landscape to kind of draw people into areas of different focal points. So you don't have to feel limited by this idea. You still want that to be simplified in the space where it's going to be kind of the most important feature. Right. You know, that's what you say, like common mistakes, it, like our, our property in Texas where the yard is square, which is often, there's often something square, even if it's, you know, hundreds of acres or thousands of acres. <laughs> so doing a design, not really, there's always a boundary but the boundary shouldn't inform the design. So maybe the garden, maybe the best solution are square rectilinear elements in the garden. But in a way, with the design, I always try to start with a, with a blank mind, blank slate, and then arrive at the solution. So what a common mistake would be, it's a square property. Let's line it. Let's line that square. So you're reinforcing the square, which there's almost no design to that. You're reinforcing what has been done. Which is also a good point. I think what we're kind of working our way toward is this other design principle of line that you, mm -hmm. you can have rounded shapes and straight shapes interposed in a way that is um, harmonious and mm -hmm. maybe breaks up as something that seems fixed. A line in the landscape. One's eye, it follows elements. So let's say there's, there's hedging. So that's like your eye is going to follow the top of that, more or less, if it's legible, if there's nothing behind it. So you're creating line. I mean, simple concept, there's mass, space. So mass would be a tree and space would be the area around the tree. So line, it's good to be aware of the lines you are creating. 
And I remember a, a uh, design exercise we did in school. We created a design, then we created a silhouette of the of what you would see. So it really got you to think. When you see the silhouette, you're like, "Oof, that's maybe all the elements were like cone shape." You're like, "Wow, I didn't even realize I was doing that." I mean, designers often work in plan view, where you're, it's like a bird's eye view, and everything is just a circle for the plant, which is nobody actually you don't actually experience it that way. So doing, and I've actually seen you in the field with a client draw out a silhouette to just to demonstrate what they would see, and actually do this example where you take that bird's eye view and you make it uh, horizontal and, and mm-hmm. uh, ele- elevation. An elevation, yeah. right. And, or a section. And it's incredibly powerful in the field to say, you know, the shape could be this or it could be this. The height could be this or it could be this. It really is that relationship that's necessary for us to evaluate it as human beings that live on the ground. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, part of that when I do sketches in the field with a client or my own I always, always, always draw a scale figure. So you think, uh, let's say a human average is like six feet is a number people know, or, you know, um, I'm not six feet, but it's an average number. So drawing, so let's say there's an ornamental tree or a shrub or both. I always draw a scale figure. And this is how it's going to, you start to convey, a lot of it is feel. So, you know, the people might be in love with a magnolia tree, like a full size and well, that's a beautiful tree, but that's going to be, let's say, 40 feet tall. A lot of the flowers are going to be above your head. This is what a six-foot person would look like next to that. And now here's your house. It's a one-story house. You know, it's really, really questioning them. Is that, did you want a giant tree that's going to overshadow your house and bring shade to the house? And they might say, not at all, but we love the flower. Like, oh, well, there's another variety. There's like a, uh, let's say, a star magnolia or other magnolias that would be been 12 feet tall there's even dwarf or uh, lower growing so really without that design training and horticulture you just go right to i love magnolias we've got a one-story house i wanted magnolia where it's really not going to solve it's not going to answer that question it's interesting because we've been in civic spaces where the where scale you mentioned the one-story house, and that's a pretty common point of reference, one- and two-story residential dwellings. And so scale, especially with the commonly available shade trees and plants, is almost a given. We maybe don't even think about it. What's really interesting is when you see civic spaces where it's these giant buildings with tiny little trees, or, mm-hmm. or you realize the scale of planting that you would need to stand up to certain buildings in order to be effective. Sometimes they have to go horizontal because vertical, there is no competition with the building. But if you're out in the world kind of looking for these design principles, look for the twist on scale, which may not be, oh, every little house has a little tree in front, but every big building does not necessarily have landscaping that helps support the scale of the building. Right. I mean, when you're, let's say you're going into a, a museum or a courthouse or another civic building, and there's, there's often a very large, I could be like a Greco-Roman urn, let's say that's popular in classical architecture. So it may be a solid urn or may hold plants. Well, from a distance, it looks, oh, that's beautiful, great scale. When you get up to some of those, it might be like nine feet, 12 feet tall. It's enormous scale or like light fixtures. That's another, what might look good in, in the sample store might look too small in the landscape. So really, 
you know, getting it to the landscape, measuring that there's you know, how you experience things are not as they appear, like a, like a stage set. There's all kinds of tricks for it to make it feel like so it's legible. You can see it. So doing what you th- what common sense would tell you is often not, <laughs> it's not the design solution. It's very interesting. Sometimes it needs to be quite a bit bigger or sometimes it's need to cut it in half. Well, we will go ahead and provide many details in our show notes. You can check out the full list if you follow the link in the show notes that typically appear when the show is published. So it goes to kinggardeninc.com forward slash in dash the dash landscape. And we have a page with show notes to try to provide you with additional links and resources. So we might add something like the page on the design gestalt principles. We will probably link to that Cooper Hewitt Design Museum if you're Mm -hmm. interested in visiting, just to give you places to proceed from the conversation that we've started here. Hopefully that's going to help generate some ideas. And and to me, again, as the non-designer, just provide a different mindset for approaching the question. How is, how is this space to be used and pacing myself in terms of the research necessary to get it so that it feels right once right. it's done? You know, maybe a couple of parting thoughts would be two words, variety and unity. So unity is repetition of materials. There's, it feels cohesive. It's having... A surprise, though, can be fun. So there's some variety. And so let's say a very meditative, like uh, Japanese gardens often do this, where there's sometimes not a lot of variety. It's beautiful. It's very meditative, very quiet, soft. Uh, That would create a different feel for the visitor. Where if there's a lot of variety, maybe it's like the, the high line is such a garden of the moment. It's popular. There's perennials. There's paving material. There's so much variety. And that's, you're going to walk on that. So your scene is constantly changing. It has to stand up to the fabric of New York City. Right. Which is it's very, variety central. There's bold, there's murals, yeah. there's buildings, skyscrapers. So it's very bold. Yeah. And so it's really, those are all seeing good design in your local community, in your travels, in your reading. And then finding something that you like and then sort of analyzing, well, what components do this, does this have? Using these design principles, mm-hmm. how do they achieve that? Great. All right. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to reach out to us at any time through our social media. You can find us on Facebook at In the Landscape. You can find us on Instagram under our design firm, King Garden Inc. We're on Pinterest under In the Landscape. You can certainly reach out to us at connect at kinggardeninc.com if you'd like to shoot us an email or message us through any of the online platforms, and we will certainly respond. We may even take your questions and make them an episode. So if you're interested in participating, that's great. And we would love, love, love to see your garden photographs. So if Mm -hmm. you have anything to send our way that you'd like us to share or comment on, feel free. And we look forward to hearing from you. You know, like teasers, we're working on other episodes on travel, Mm -hmm. right? On More garden cities to come. More garden cities. And then also with the upcoming some holidays. We're going to uh, look into plants that relate to various holidays from many different cultures and backgrounds, how plants often play a role. And they, they do play a big role in a lot of cultural celebrations. So we're looking forward to that. All right. So we hope you manage to get in the landscape sometime soon. And uh, thank you for listening. Until next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>